You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. When you hear the word worship, I don't know what comes to your mind, um, but the word worship in Hebrew literally means to bow down. Um, our, our English version of the word worship, the way that we define it, is to show reverence or adoration for something or someone. <clears throat> but if we ask the question this morning, let's say we took a survey um, and we asked you privately, what was the greatest worship experience of your life? If we really understand worship, most of us would probably have to answer something that wasn't necessarily having to do with church. Now, I'm not saying it doesn't have anything to do with God, but most of us would probably have to say that it was something that did not necessarily involve um, being with the people of God on a Sunday morning. What do I mean by that? Well, for some of us, uh, it could be that the greatest worship experience of your life was the first time you saw the Grand Canyon. Um, I don't know if you've seen the Grand Canyon, but for me anyways, as a 16-year-old, I did not need any further evidence that there was a God. I mean, for me... You cannot stand there and look out at that and think, oh, this just happened. It's insane. Um, Maybe for some of us, we've stood at the foot of the Rocky Mountains, or we've stood on a beach at the edge of the Atlantic Ocean and looked out and been overwhelmed by how majestic God is in all that he creates. And not only in that, maybe you also were made aware of your own smallness, because, you know, you sit there, I have these little flashes every once in a while where I realize I'm one of 7 billion people on the planet currently. It's not 7 billion people have ever been in the world. 7 people are, billion people are in the world now. I'm very small. There are others of us who, if we were honest would have to say the greatest worship experience of our lives was standing in a stadium filled with 100,000 other people screaming for the same thing. And maybe you were screaming for that guy who was like a tiny speck down there behind the microphone who was singing, and 100,000 people were all singing with you the words that they knew by heart. You ever been there? I have. It's crazy. Or maybe you were screaming for the guy running down the field with that ball. 106 yards. Some of you will get that later. I know Dee's going to kick me in the shin for it. Worship is to ascribe or to attribute uh, to something or someone more worth than anything else. It's me saying you are more valuable than anything or anyone else. Worship is centering our mind's attention and our heart's affections on something. And as the people of God, that something or someone that our mind's attention and our heart's affection have got to be cast on is God. 
I want to read with you this morning an example of what that looks and sounds like. Psalm 96 is very, very powerful. Look at Psalm 96, verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Why do we come together and gather and sing as the body of Christ? The Bible tells us to. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. And you might read that and go, now wait a minute. There are other gods? Well, let's dispel that idea. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory, do his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. To ascribe to God does not mean that you and I, that we increase God's glory and honor or his strength and beauty. It doesn't mean that when we ascribe those things to him, he now has more than he already did. When we ascribe to him strength and beauty and glory and honor, what we are doing is recognizing that he already has all those things. And in fact, he doesn't have those things or possess them. He is those things. God is strength. God is beauty. God is majesty. Worship, in that we recognize his strength, we proclaim his glory, and we do it gladly. That's significant. I want to give you a definition to keep with you of worship. And I want to make sure you know that I didn't come up with this definition. I saw this definition over 20 years ago. And I believe that Louis Giglio came up with this. But this is the way he words it. Worship is our response, both personal and corporate, to God. For who he is and what he's done. And if you want to go a little bit further that, with that, you can say expressed in and by the things that we say and the way that we live. Worship is our response, both personal and corporate, to God for who he is and what he's done, expressed in and by the things that we say and the way that we live. This morning, we're going to look at, in my opinion, one of the greatest worship experiences ever. We've got it recorded here in the Word of God, in the book of Nehemiah, the walls of Jerusalem have been rebuilt, and God's people come together to celebrate this. But as we take a look at this story, um, we're going to see, as we actually alluded to a little bit last week, um, that we will not worship God randomly or accidentally. It will always be on purpose. But when we worship the Lord on purpose, we will live that way as well. Take a look with me this morning in Nehemiah which is right before uh, the Psalms. Uh, there's like Job, Esther, and then if you're going backwards, bam, there's Nehemiah. We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 8. 
Now, before we read, I want you to know some about this story in case you've never read it before. Nehemiah is a Jew. He is taken in the Babylonian captivity to Babylon. He's still there, um, but he has good favor with the people there, so much so that he's actually serving and working for the king, King Artaxerxes. Well, Nehemiah's friends come to visit him, and they have some bad news to tell him. Nehemiah, the walls of our city of Jerusalem are still broken down. Why is this horrible news? Well, because in that day and time, if the walls of your city were broken down, um, you were vulnerable. You could be attacked and destroyed. So this is horrible news, and Nehemiah is really broken over it. So he goes to the king to ask, can I have permission to go home and help rebuild the walls around my city? Now understand, hey king, you know the city that you ransacked and brought me here as a prisoner from, would you allow me to go back there and strengthen that city, rebuild its walls? Well, not only does he get permission, he basically gets the king's blessing and like an unwritten check. Give Nehemiah logs, saws, I mean, 18 wheelers, I don't know. Whatever you need, take it and go. And Nehemiah goes. And they begin this rebuilding process and they face a lot of opposition, but they get it done. But in the midst of all of this, there's a realization there, I think on Nehemiah's part, that the walls being broken down is maybe not the main issue here. The people's lives look just like the walls. And as they rebuild the walls and they're about to celebrate, they all come to the realization that something else of even greater significance is missing from their city, from their lives. The Word of God. Look with me. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. It says, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate... And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on that first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and all those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for this purpose. And then the scripture tells us there in verse 4 that all of these spiritual leaders were with Nehemiah, standing up there on his right side and on his left side. Verse 5 says that then Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And then the Levites began to go out among all the people and minister to them there right where they were by making sure that they understood what the word of God said. Look at verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor... And Ezra the priest and scribe, and all the Levites who taught the people, said to the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all of the people wept as they heard the words of the law. 
Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, do not stay in your grief, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Quiet down, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. Don't stay in your grief. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. I want you to get a mental picture of what has happened. Okay? The people were drawn by God to his word. So much so that they go to Ezra, who is the priest, and beg him, please bring the word of God before us and, and teach us. Read to us from God's law. Maybe we've been so bu- busy building this wall that we've forgotten and neglected God's word. And so Ezra stands up on a giant wooden platform maybe like this, that they built just for this occasion, okay? And Ezra begins to open the word of God, and as he opens the word of God, all the people stand up. And then he begins to read from the word of God, and the people begin saying, amen, amen, lifting up their hands, as if to say, God, whatever you say, so be it. God, whatever it is that you've asked of us, so be it. Amen. God, whoever it is that you desire us to be, amen. So be it. Their hands are lifted. They're shouting, amen, amen. Their heads are bowed to the ground. What's going on here? What's beginning to happen? They're beginning to worship. And they're all of a sudden overcome with brokenness and conviction. Uh, they're, They're overcome by the magnitude of who God is and what he's done and emotion begins to flood their souls and the scripture says they begin to weep. Let's say that you and I were cruising through Jerusalem on this day and we kind of happened upon this and we were standing in the back going, what is going on? Like, what just happened here? Let me sum it up for you in one sentence. The Spirit of God took the Word of God and pierced their lives and their hearts. Straight through. And as a result, they begin to worship. Their ears, you notice that they came with ears and hearts that were attentive to God, open to hear the word of God. How do we know this? Well, because they were the ones begging for the word of God to be brought. We're told their ears were attentive. They were led to a place of Psalm Psalm 27, of saying, God, you have said, seek my face. Well, we're here today to say to you together, it is your face that we seek. That they are given a heart from Psalm 96 that says, ascribe to the Lord glory and honor and beauty and majesty and all those things that he deserves. And their realization and their proclamation, their confession of who God is and what he's done 
lead them to this place of brokenness and obedience. I believe that this is what Paul, this is a great picture of what Paul was describing and saying to the Romans. Look with me in Romans. Um, I think that a lot of us, we at least are familiar with, if not know, Romans 12, 1 and 2. I would say very few of us, though, probably know what the end of Romans 11 says, which is what the, it's the reason for what's being said in Romans 12. How do we know this? Well, because Romans 12 begins with that word, therefore. So like, because of what I just said, now I'm saying this. Look with me, Romans 11, verse 33. Paul is worshiping here in a letter. He's writing a letter and he's worshiping. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. And now Paul begins quoting scripture himself. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given him a gift that he should have to repay them? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever Amen. Therefore, Paul says, because of this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It's important for us to know that when it comes to worshiping God, there is only one kind of worship spiritual worship. This is your spiritual act of worship. Here's what I mean. It is only through the word of God that we discover the truth of who he is and what he's done. Okay? But it is only through the spirit of God that we are pierced and transformed by that revelation. And so understanding this, we understand that you can't separate or remove the word of God from the worship of God. But you also cannot remove or separate the worship of God from the word of God. If you want to just go into the Bible to just kind of learn something, hey, I'm a, I'm a knowledgeable, intelligent person, and you know I've read Shakespeare, and I've read Dickens, so now I'm going to read Paul. It doesn't work that way. If you're reading this for intellectual information, you will smash your head through a window. This will disrupt, if not just freak out your life. It was not written or intended to just give us mental assent. You can't separate the word of God from the worship of God and you cannot separate the worship of God from the word of God. This is what Jesus was trying to tell the woman at the well. If you're familiar with this story in John 4, I know many of you know it well, sorry. Um, here's this lady, and Jesus is talking to her about her life, telling her things that he shouldn't know 
uh, but he's Jesus and he knows them. And she keeps trying to spin the conversation back around to something else. And if you've read it, you know, what does she want to talk about? She wants to talk about where people worship and when people worship. And Jesus is basically like, look, don't really care about where or when. What I care about is how. And he explains to her, look with me, rather than me misquote it. John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. He says to her, The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Now let's go back to Nehemiah chapter 8. Submission. Surrender leads to worship. The knowledge of who God is and what he's done, okay, then, then that, that worship leads to brokenness and repentance. The knowledge and the realization of who I am and everything I've done. See, when you realize who God is and what he's done, and you know who you are and what you've done, that you've done nothing to deserve God, who he is or what he's done, that breaks you. But that brokenness only comes through the Word of God and the Spirit of God. You can't remove them from this equation. But so, Nehemiah 8, submission and surrender lead to worship. Worship leads to brokenness and repentance. Brokenness and repentance leads to something else. Obedience. Obedience. And their obedience leads them to something that you and I desperately long for. And that's joy. Their obedience leads them to joy. And their joy in the Lord leads them back to obedience. When you continue reading Nehemiah chapter 8, what you discover, you find the people walking in obedience and filled with joy and you, it, the lines begin to blur and what you begin to realize is that well now wait a minute one of these doesn't produce the other they're inseparable obedience to christ and joy in christ are inseparable you cannot pull them apart obedience to christ and joy in christ are inseparable but also hear this obedience to christ and joy in christ are the evidence that we are worshiping Christ. Obedience and joy are the marks of authentic worship. Now see, many of us come seeking joy, but we come believing that joy is like this super spiritual version of happiness. And because of that, we equate joy with worldly happiness. And because of that, we equate joy with emotion and elation. Basically, if I boil it down to something very simple, I would say this. Like when we come on a Sunday, we want to feel something. And don't get me wrong. It's not wrong to feel something. In fact, it's often good for us to feel something. Whether it is we are overwhelmed um, with, with joy or that we are broken by the Lord or we are just so content because we know who God is. 
But we have to understand something. Our feelings are not Jesus' first priority. Can you live with that? Some people don't want to hear that. But guess what? Your feelings are not Jesus' first priority. I'll prove it to you. Look in John chapter 15. In John 15, beginning in verse 8. Jesus is about to reveal to all of us what his first priority is. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, if you obey me, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be full. So, Jesus' first priority, we've coped with it, it's not our feelings, what is it? Jesus' first priority is the glory of the Father. By this, my Father is glorified. And then he goes from there. Why does he say that? Because that's his first priority and his first concern, that the Father would be glorified, all right? Now, what's the path to this priority? Well, Jesus says that it's when we abide in him, when we keep his commandments. Let's boil it down to one word. It's when you and I obey. The priority, the glory of the Father. The path to that priority, our obedience. What's the result of that priority? His joy in us, and our joy is full. Obedience to Christ does not simply supply us with joy in Christ. Obedience to Christ is joy in Christ. Obedience is our declaration that we have found in Jesus Christ the greatest treasure. That there's nothing greater. That that is the most supreme thing we could possibly ever find in this world. So what are we doing here today? Like, is what we're doing here this morning together, is this worship? I would say it depends. It depends on why we've come, and it depends on who we've come for, and on how we leave. Have we come this morning seeking to honor and praise the Lord for who He is and what He's done? Have we come with hearts that are prepared to hear from Him whatever it is that He might want to say to us to the, to the place that we might even be drawn to lift our hands up and say, Amen. God, whatever you say to me, whatever you ask of me, are we here this morning with hearts prepared to hear from him how are we going to leave here today are are we going to leave here offering our lives as paul said as a living sacrifice and when paul said offer your bodies 
he wasn't just meaning, okay, God, you can have my physical body, but I'm going to keep my brain. No, he's saying, I want all of you as a living sacrifice. That means that how I live is offered up to God. Will we leave here this morning changed, transformed by the Spirit and the Word of God, hungry to be the people that God has called us to be, to do what God's called us to do? Will we leave here together today on mission for the sake of the gospel? Because see, that's what we've been told to do. And our obedience is the evidence that we're worshiping. Worship is our response, both personal and corporate, to God for who He is and what He's done, expressed in and by the things that we say and the way that we live. Who He is, what He's done. Who is He? He is the eternal, sovereign, almighty, just, merciful, gracious, loving creator, sustainer, and father that not one of us in this room deserve, but who have, has come, he created us, he has adopted us back as his own. That's who he is. What has he done? Well, he, he did just what I said he did, and he did it by sending his own son to give his life, to lay it down willfully, to die on a cross, rise from the dead so that you and I might have life. He's given his son, Jesus, that you and I might have life to the fullest. That's who he is, and that's what he's done. And so as a result, he's worthy of our worship. Him alone. Obedience to Christ and joy in Christ are evidence that we are worshiping Christ. They are the marks of authentic worship. And here's what's great. Our obedience and our joy, they're not just evidence that we've been worshiping. Obedience and joy are also the things that catalyze and push us into worship. It, it, you, it's almost like the chicken and the egg, except a little bit more important and bigger. We don't know where's this start and where's this end. But here's what I do know is that when I worship the Lord and I truly am broken by him, and I don't mean broken like beaten down, but I mean broken like you're made aware that I'm already broken and the Lord wants to heal me. I just want to seek him. And when I find myself worshiping him, then I find myself through the power of the Holy Spirit wanting to obey him. And when I obey him, it doesn't matter what I walk through, there is joy. And that leads me back to the place of wanting once again, even more, to worship him. You say to us, seek your face. Our hearts reply, it's your face that we seek. You know, I believe that those words, <clears throat> they actually mean something when we're able to say, Lord... I don't know what you want to do with this life you've given me, but it's yours. That's the evidence that we have said, it's your face that we seek. Let's pray together.
Father, this morning we praise you because you are the eternal, almighty, all-knowing, creator, sustainer, provider, healer. Father, we, we praise you today and we just proclaim we can't even begin to understand the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge that you hold. Father, we could never possibly say to you that you owe us anything, but we owe you everything. And Lord Jesus, this morning we praise you and thank you once again that you came knowing what would be ahead of you. Lord, we praise you that no one took your life from you, but that you laid it down. Lord Jesus, we thank you for bearing our shame, for bearing our sin on the cross, and that you have become our atonement, our salvation, that we might be reconciled back to the Father, adopted as sons and daughters. We thank you that because of your cross and your resurrection, we have been brought from death to life. That we have been resurrected. Lord, this morning as we take communion, as we take that bread and that cup, we remember that you shed your blood for us, that you gave your life for us, that you were beaten and bruised and mocked and humiliated and murdered for us. thank you that you have given us life Lord Jesus you are king eternal Lord immortal in just a moment as we respond to the Lord um, 
we have the opportunity this morning to take communion. If you are here this morning and, and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, I encourage you, whether you come alone or with a friend or with your family, to take just a moment and reflect and remember and worship the Lord. Jesus, this time is yours. All honor and glory to you. Thanks for listening to The Brook. If you'd like more information about our church or what it means to follow Christ, you can visit our website at thebrookchurch.com.